Darling, I was on a vacation recently and stayed at an Airbnb, and then I realized that while I was away, my empty house could be making money, honey. If you're someone like me that is busy and not home all the time, your home could be an Airbnb. And it's actually pretty simple to get started. Even if you don't have a whole house, you could start with just a spare room. Personally, I really enjoy staying at Airbnbs. I really do. I love a good Airbnb. Who is that? Come back, British you. And it really is a great way to like support local economy and support local people. So Airbnb is fabulous. And I know I was doing my British voice earlier, but we love Airbnb. So think about what you could do with some extra cash. Whether you're looking to treat yourself to something nice, like a shopping spree or a spa day, or start a whole side hustle, Airbnb can help you be that person. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You ever own something that inspired you to up your game? We spend so much time in our cars. It's nice to have a car that makes you feel good. It's giving me like, you deserve to take care of yourself, girl. Honey, I just love Alexis because it's giving luxury. It just gives like, nice. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And the features on this GX, honey? Available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Available front row massaging seats. Ooh! Available 33-inch all-terrain tires. That's wide! Available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness, and every week I sit down for a gorgeous conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. This is part two of our conversation with Dr. Catherine Oliverius, all about New Orleans history. Honey, in part one, we covered the basics on the Louisiana Purchase, New Orleans statehood, and New Orleans politics and power in the early 1800s. Today, we're getting into Catherine's area of expertise, yellow fever. Now, I did not even know that yellow fever was such a huge deal, but honey, was it ever. As we learned yesterday, every second or third summer in the 1800s, yellow fever became epidemic in New Orleans. And this disease could kill between 8 and 10% of the population each summer. As Catherine's about to share with us, the story of yellow fever is the story of New Orleans, and people in the city are still feeling the effects of these epidemics. Didn't know you were curious about yellow fever? Neither did we. But this is one conversation you don't want to miss. What was the first historical example that you came across where people were like, this fucking yellow fever? Like, when did they name it that? Like, when did they start clocking it? Nobody outside of Africa or West Africa knew that yellow fever existed until the 17th century. In the mid-17th century, you see these massive epidemics that explode in the Caribbean. So in Barbados, in the late 1640s, an epidemic kills like 14% of the island. You know, this is just huge. And it sort of spreads across the Caribbean, down to the Yucatan, all over. And so you see yellow fever has this very dramatic burst onto the scene in the mid-17th century. And by the 19th century, this is a disease every single person in the Atlantic world would have known about. They would have feared it. And they, you know, hoped either to never come in contact with it or else if they had come in contact with it, that they were survivors of it because survivors gained lifetime immunity. 
And how did they figure that out? Just because people that had got it were like, oh, I'm alive and I continue to be and I don't get sick again. There's a lot of sort of mystery around this disease. They don't discover, for example, that this is spread by mosquitoes until the very end of the 19th century. Um, This disease is totally shrouded in mystery. There is no cure. There's no vaccination. There is no conclusive evidence of disease transmission. There is no telling as to why some people remain asymptomatic and have very you know mild cases or why it kills other people. So it's basically like the COVID of like the 18... 18- Except a lot deadlier. So if you were to fall sick with yellow fever in the 19th century, there were two equally likely outcomes from your brush with this disease. So either you would become immune for life or you'd die. And so we're talking a much, much deadlier disease than COVID. But I actually think that COVID is a really good comparison because I think this gives us a touch point for understanding even just a little bit of what people felt throughout their entire lives living in the shadow of this really destructive virus and not knowing basically anything about it. And what does it do? You get it and then it, what what happens? Yellow fever is a hemorrhagic fever in the sort of same family as dengue and Zika and others. So victims experienced a sort of sudden onset of chills and nausea and lower back pains and headaches Within hours or perhaps days, you have patients who are vomiting, they have incredibly high fevers, they grow delirious. Um, Within days after that, even hours too, this can happen very quickly. Your organs begin to shut down, eventually you lapse into a coma, and then at the end of your illness, you vomit this sort of partly coagulated blood that looked and felt like coffee grounds. And this is an incredibly painful way to die too. I have all these examples of you know ministers, of people who are incredibly pious, who are screaming profanities at the very end of their illness. Do people ever live after the coffee ground puke or then you die? Like if you get the coffee ground puke, you die or do you, can you live? Your chances weren't good, but you could live. You could live. But that's just, that's blood coagulating in your stomach, which is not a good sign um, because it means that your organs are deteriorating. And again, remember, you know, you have a 50% chance of dying and you have a 50% chance of surviving and therefore gaining lifetime immunity. And they they understood this at the time. They understood that surviving the disease was the only way to basically survive long-term. And they, at the time, called this acclimation. And what they meant by that varied, but acclimation essentially meant that you've adapted to the climate. You've become immune. We learned in our vaccine history episode that weren't they doing like smallpox vaccines in like the 16 or 7? So yeah. they knew that vaccines like existed. So there was no ever anyone getting double infected with yellow fever. Like Once you survive it once, you're like done. If you survive yellow fever, you're immune. It's a pretty thorough lifetime immunity, in fact. And they know this. However, in a place like New Orleans, where you have you know epidemic yellow fever occasionally, but you also have endemic malaria, dengue fever, which is breakbone fever, you have scarlet fever, intermittent fever. You know, it's very easy to confuse yellow fever with these other fevers. And so this was, you know, a matter of constant speculation. You know, 1839, for example, if you, you know, got sick that summer, you'd say, well, I hope that was yellow fever. I think it was yellow fever. A doctor attended me and said it was yellow fever, but could it have been one of these other fevers? And does that mean I'm actually acclimated? And so you see people who are worried their whole lives if what they survived was actually yellow fever. And of course, surviving malaria had no bearing on your ability to survive yellow fever and vice versa. And they sort of knew this. So there was a lot of, again, debate about, you know, what exactly yellow fever was. Was it a discrete illness? You know, was it just the sort of dire end of the fever spectrum? It's really high risk, really high stakes questioning about, you know, the future of your health. And of course, if you were sure that you were guaranteed acclimated or if you were sure that you were immune, this would deeply impact your choices. Um, It would impact if you'd stayed in town during the summer, the sort of people you dealt with, who you married even, 
the immunity calculus factored into all manner of questions in New Orleans. That was like when you were vaccinated or not. Like in COVID, like can you... Yeah, that's so interesting. Okay, so did it end up being like a mosquito-borne illness? Like if you get yellow fever, like do you give it to someone else or you're not contagious when you have it because you got to get bit by the mosquito? So a mosquito infected with the yellow fever virus, if it bites you, it will pass it to you. And if a mosquito, another mosquito bites you, you know, when you have yellow fever, they can spread that too. So this is why actually for transmission to be really effective, you have to have a really closely packed human population. You need to be in cities, basically, because you need to have transmission from mosquito to human to mosquito to human. This needs to happen quite quickly. And you need to be sort of close together because these mosquitoes actually don't travel all that far over the course of their lives. So all of this needs to happen in pretty close proximity. So then like people weren't really contagious like to other people, like you had to get it from a mosquito. Right. And this is a huge question, a matter of massive debate during the 19th century as to whether the disease was quote unquote contagious. And by contagious, then they meant spread by human to human through human contact. They did not conceive of the mosquito vector. So this this disease was quote unquote non-contagious in their mind because it didn't spread in that manner. Would you see like, People that had more money, like it makes you think about Dr. Celeste Watkins Hayes episode about the HIV social safety net and about how she talks about like, you know, when they say like, we're all in this together. And she's like, yeah, public health, like we're all in this together. But some people are in yachts and some people are on like the fucking board from the Titanic that Rose and Jack are on like, yeah, with, you know, 70 foot waves trying to fucking survive this thing. So were enslaved people or people who are living in very close cramped quarters, like worse off as compared to like people who are in like a bigger house and like, weren't so on top of each other? Long and short answer to that is yes. I mean, disease and health, these are always political issues. And the way that we experience disease and epidemics and pandemics, this is deeply class-based. Think about the number of people who, you know, at least, you know, over here in Silicon Valley, the number of people who during, you know, the early days of COVID, they went to their houses in Sun Valley and they brought, you know, their teachers for their kids with them and they ate organic food and, you know, they they had an extended vacation, whereas huge numbers of people could not afford to not take on disease risk, couldn't afford to stay home, they couldn't afford to not work, etc. That was sort of the way in which coronavirus, wouldn't even say that this is necessarily exacerbated inequality. I think it just showed the inequalities that were already very, very present in our society. The same thing existed in Antebellum, New Orleans with this. If you were rich, you would basically leave the city, flee your townhouse, that you would flee with a staff of people, enslaved people, you would go to your country plantation, And there you would spend the summer riding the sickly season out. Or you might go to New York and go to the theater. Or you might go to London and do your business there. And your family would come with you and they would tour museums. And they would, you know, have a sort of grand time in Europe. While, of course, poor people, unfree people, so enslaved people, people who are, you know, impoverished, they could not afford to flee the city. And so they were basically stuck in this disease scape for three months of the year, hoping that they would not get sick. And if they did get sick, that they would survive. So many accounts of this, of people saying, you know, there's nobody outside. Everyone's shuttered indoors for as much of the summer as they can be. They'll sort of scurry to work, but they won't talk to people. They won't touch people. Everyone was suspicious. There would be body carts coming down the streets, taking the dead to cemeteries, where bodies would literally pile up because there weren't enough grave diggers to, you know, dig graves fast enough. And so there would be this just foul smell over the city of decomposing bodies. It was utterly miserable. So we learned about sanitarians and public health reformers in the 1800s from our episode about the history of trash collection, so interest. 
So did New Orleans like have to endure such long, intense bouts of this disease? Like you said that people didn't really understand how it spread until the end of the 1800s. But how did like city officials resist funding to make a more robust public health system? Like how did officials make it harder? So New Orleans did not have to be this way. That is like, let me just emphasize that and put an exclamation point at the end of that. New Orleans was actually quite different than other American cities at this time in their basic rejection of public health. So during the 19th century, you see other cities, New York, Charleston, Richmond, Philadelphia, you see these cities not doing a perfect job, but they're increasingly sort of taking steps to protect the public's health. And so you see cities like New York, for example, or Philadelphia, they're investing in creating waterworks systems, drainage for the city, sewerage systems. They also build orphanages to account for kids who are left you know, orphaned after epidemics or after their parents die. They build hospitals. They fund quarantines. And you know, quarantines in these days, you know, we think of quarantines as sort of like a physical space, one place. It's not quite like that. In most poor cities, you'd have sort of multiple quarantines for different diseases and, you know, ships would come into harbor and you'd have trained experts, not quite epidemiologists yet, but doctors who would inspect ships and they would seek to isolate cases of disease. And this didn't always work, but it often did. And it often worked to reduce sickness and death overall. Now, New Orleans was basically the exact opposite of this. The city took essentially no steps, and I mean really no steps, to improve the public's health in any maintained and concerted capacity. So New Orleans instituted quarantines only four times during the antebellum period, four very brief times. They buckled every time that they were installed because of pressure from the business community. Basically, businessmen didn't want them because it would disrupt trade. And, you know, the city government essentially was most beholden to these big enslavers, these big planters who would argue against public health reform. You know, draining New Orleans has always been difficult. It still remains difficult, in fact, too. But New Orleans really didn't invest much money into this until the very end of the 19th century. Every single visitor, and I, I mean every single visitor, they dedicate sections of their travelogue or their diary to just how filthy and kind of disturbing New Orleans is and how out of sync it was with other cities at this time. It was filthy. You know, the roads were essentially just like mud walkways. People would walk on these sort of wooden planks on the side of streets, hoping not to fall into the morass. This is gross. And in fact, one of the sort of, oh, it's it's totally disgusting. But, you know, as New Orleans sits so close to sea level, burial in the ground is very, very difficult, if not impossible. So that's why you have above ground crypts, in fact, in New Orleans. This is why if you go to St. Louis Cemetery number one or two, you have these above ground crypts because it keeps people away from the soggy ground. But if you were poor or you were enslaved, or you didn't have family to, to sort of look after you, you would be buried in Potter's Field. That's the cemetery of the poor and indigent. And that means that you were basically dumped into a very low-lying grave. And many, many people described what would happen after even a light rain, which is that bodies would rise to the surface, and then crawfish and dogs and birds would feast on them. And even in some circumstances, bodies would literally float out to the Mississippi River, along with the trash, and would float into the Gulf of Mexico. You know, this is a filthy city. And the city officials, politicians, councilmen, they in general didn't care very much because they didn't want to spend any tax money on this. And their attitude always was basically, you know, there's nothing that we can do to solve the yellow fever problem. What we can do is we can help you once you've survived to make money, but it is your individual responsibility to get acclimated. So, you know, nobody asked you to come here. 
It's your job as a man and as a brave American to face this disease, to get acclimated and survive and become what they called an acclimated citizen. And we are not going to have anything to do with you until that time. Ooh, honey, the weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I needed to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. Luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. Honey, these premium European linen dresses, blouses and shorts from $30. They're giving you washable silk tops. I love the quality of their fabrics. It really is stunning. Oh my God. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash curious for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash curious to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash curious. Let's face it. I'm not going to stop treating myself anytime soon and neither should you. But what I should stop doing is paying for me time with whatever random credit card is in my wallet. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending. Some even offering 10 times the points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? Honey, is it like a gorgeous free flight that you would have had to have paid for, but honey, you're saving that flight money? Is it a gorgeous room upgrade? Is it like a gorgeous like two-bedroom suite instead of a one-bedroom suite so your like in-laws or like your friend could stay over there in that room so you don't have to like hear them doing whatever with what they're doing in your your guys' room? Is it like really adulting? Oh, I love adulting. And you know what else I love? is not waiting to make smart financial decisions. I also love paying my credit cards off in full every month because like, yes, good credit. So let's like do try to do that and like making responsible decisions, which we love. Um, But anyway, don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Okay, so this is also giving me, like, a little Stephen Thrasher. Dr. Stephen Thrasher taught us about, he wrote an incredible book called The Viral Underclass. We got to interview him last year during the monkeypox outbreak, which, you know, all of these, it's same story, different century, honey, in different ways, different players, but it's just so interesting. So acclimated means that you survived yellow fever. You mentioned that earlier. Obviously, you would benefit from that because you could work more often. You could go to different parts of town. And I hear when you said, you know, it's your job as a Mayan to come down here as a fearless American and set up your homestead. So we got some gender stuff in there about what about women? Because obviously they can get yellow fever and die too. And then what differentiated immunity from immunocapital? Like what does that immunocapital idea mean? So one of the, the ways that I conceive of New Orleans is this. If you're familiar with the history of Louisiana and New Orleans, you're probably familiar with this kind of tripartite social hierarchy. That is white people who are free, that is free black people, and that is enslaved people. This is the defining racial hierarchy of New Orleans. But on the side of this, you have this other invisible hierarchy at work. So here you also have so-called acclimated citizens. These are yellow fever survivors, people who have faced the disease and has sufficiently proved to others that they are yellow fever survivors. They're sort of sitting at the top of everything, social, political, cultural life. 
Then you have so-called unacclimated strangers. These are people who are kind of in this social purgatory. These are people who are still awaiting their brush with yellow fever, people who have not sort of demonstrated their worth by getting sick and surviving. And then at the bottom of this hierarchy, you have a combination of groups. You have the dead. These are people who, in the logic of the time, were not of sufficient sort of moral character to have survived in the first place. So this generally includes drunks. This includes foreigners who are of a low character, includes sexual deviants, so-called at the time. This includes all people who sort of post hoc, after the fact, have been tarred with these sort of moral blights. So you have the dead in this category too, but then you also have enslaved people and most free people of color. And these are people for whom immunity added nothing to their economic or social standing, only to that of others. So generally they're enslavers. You're totally right that, you know, a lot of the language that people used at the time was to do with masculinity and manliness. And so there's so much kind of coding going on in the way that people described what it meant to be acclimated. And acclimation, by the way, one of the things that's really tricky about this, also really interesting for historians, is that immunity is invisible. So if you survive certain diseases, like smallpox, generally you'd be left with scars in your face. If you had syphilis, you'd be scarred, things like this. But yellow fever, immunity is invisible. And so you basically have to prove to others, you've got to act the part and convince them of your acclimation status. And a lot of that is tied up in the performance of masculinity. And so that, you know, you would talk about how you had braved this epidemic as a man, that you had taken on disease risk willingly, that you had, you know, done this so that you could become a better patriarch and, you know, guard the lives and livelihoods of your dependents. This is mostly women and children. You could leverage your acclimation. You could get better jobs. You'd be paid more. You know, you had access to new lines of insurance and credit. You could sort of socially improve. You could enter the ranks of government. You could, um, in many cases, vote now. There's a lot of sort of social power that comes from being acclimated in this space. And of course, for women, the sort of calculus is, again, a little bit different. But if you were a white woman and you were sort of on the marriage market, if you were acclimated, that was a huge bargaining chip. And you would have some of the first questions of, you know, suitors would come and ask, when did you have yellow fever? What were your symptoms exactly? Can I talk to your doctor to confirm what you're saying is correct? Because I don't totally trust you. So put me in touch with your doctor and I'll ask him about your symptoms to make sure that you can fulfill, you know, that if we were to get married, that you're not going to just die in October. Obviously, I don't want you to die, but I want you to survive long enough at the very least for you to be able to bear children, which was considered to be, you know, the sort of benchmark of matriarchy or, you know, being a proper matriarch and woman in this time period. So all of this is very gender coded. And you actually have people who literally say men who say, you know, that facing yellow fever in New Orleans was akin to what soldiers did at Yorktown in facing down the British during the revolution. These are equal levels of bravery required. Basically, you are a veteran of this disease, that you are in this sort of invisible fraternity of disease survivors. This is a way that men related to one another, the language of masculinity and surviving disease. This was all very much molded together and became this sort of hot mess of confusing metaphors and things like this. But it meant a great deal to people at the time for their own self-identity and self-worth. So people that were immigrating to New Orleans from within the United States, like, you know, European settlers or whatever, were taking a huge risk coming to New Orleans as opposed to yeah. just like staying their ass up in Philly or like not going there. And and were people experiencing like Southern migration? Like were people coming to New Orleans like for this yeah. wild new opportunity and to like 
even though it's like you know all related to like slavery and like all this like fucked up shit but they were just like we can get rich if we survive yellow fever that is 100 correct it was called mississippi or alabama fever in the 1810s and 20s you see this huge surge of people pouring into new orleans and they sort of look i guess intellectually at least know that the risk is there they know that yellow fever exists they've read about it they've heard about it but they also are really, you know, just like people today, by the way, this should sound familiar to us, they're really good at writing themselves out of the data. So, you know, we're all very good at this, where we think, you know what, I know I read this, but I'm different. I'm healthy. And think about how many times you heard this during COVID. You know, I had students who say, well, I do yoga and I drink green juice and I'm healthy, so I'm not going to get COVID. This is a disease that other people get. And of course, that's untrue. But it's these lies that we tell ourselves either to make ourselves feel better or essentially, you know, it's a sort of survival mechanism, perhaps, too, that we're really good at writing ourselves out of the data. And people, you know, even if they knew that the risk was there, people still came in droves. And they came because this was the place that ambitious white men went in the 19th century. This is sort of like the Silicon Valley of its day, where everyone says, you know, yes, cotton plantations, they fail, you know, more times than they succeed. But again, I'm great at this. And I've got this you know, inheritance of $1,000, I'm going to invest this in a plantation, or I'm going to, you know, I'm going to use this to buy property, I'm going to do whatever it is, and I'm going to become, you know, a millionaire. And there are all these stories from New Orleans of these basically millionaires popping up basically overnight. They're part myth, they're part true. People did become very richer, white people, almost exclusively through the use of enslaved people, of course, then, you know, rewrite the narrative to say their wealth is totally due to their own genius, and their own sort of savvy in a way that not to make, you know, make too many Silicon Valley comparisons where I am right now. But I think you, you, know, you see this logic all the time, too, that geniuses and titans of tech, they sort of rewrite their genesis stories um, to not talk about the people, A, that they exploited, or else the huge amounts of risk and failure that they met along the way. This is, you know, high chance of failing in Antebellum, New Orleans. You also had a high chance of dying. And people just fundamentally either sort of swallowed that and sucked it up, or hoped that it wouldn't be them. And you mentioned earlier that social hierarchy of the acclimated people. So there was like, if you were a enslaved person or a free person of color or mm-hmm. like a queer person and you survived it, it didn't matter because no one was trying to fuck with you anyway, but at least you could like go to the store and not worry about dying or something. Free people of color and enslaved people. So black people in New Orleans, for the most part, if they became immune the value of that immunity, the monetary value or the social value, that devolved to their white owner, not for people of color, but for enslaved people. For the other people in that sort of group of outsiders here, the sort of ultimate outsiders were the people who died of yellow fever, who after the fact, people would say, well, you know, of course, you know, sort of they deserve to die because, you know, if survivors are these moral, upstanding, manly men, oh. the dead are the opposite. They're poor, they're you know, at the time they would say effeminate, they were sexually licentious, that, you know, meant that they were either, you know, sort of sleeping around or habituated prostitutes. You know, there's a sort of sea of kind of, quote unquote, immoral behavior that would be ascribed to this behavior after the fact. And it was all a way of seeking to kind of make... Make you feel safer. Yeah, and to, and to sort of actually provide a kind of logic to the illogical and random workings of a virus. Yes, hello religion. Yeah, exactly. It's actually, it's very much like that, sort of the surviving elect. They deserve to survive. Therefore, the poor deserve to die. So 
We've spoken with Jackie Antonovich and Sabrina Strings about how America's medical profession is rooted in racism and eugenics. That is literally not hyperbolic. It's like actually like literally history, which like even when I started reading about that, like I could feel my grandma who was uh, for the record born in North Carolina in the 30s. I couldn't feel her rolling her eyes, but it is true. It it really is true. And of course, those people roll their eyes because if they acknowledge it, it makes them feel really bad and people don't like to feel bad. So they just rewrite their (laughs) narratives as you were saying before, Catherine. So all roads typically with racism and eugenics, it it always leads back to Francis Galton. We're frequently talking about this man. He was the cousin of Charles Darwin who invented like survival of the fittest and, you know, evolution. But, you know, eugenics is like the first cousin as well of evolution, except for like racialized and with people. And it's really, really evil and pseudoscience. It's caused a lot of pain and suffering. But you and your book have introduced us to a whole new cast of these Francis Galton-esque fucks who were deeply peddling in, you know, these eugenicist ideas in New Orleans, such as Samuel Cartwright. So how did doctors use yellow fever to justify enslavement? Is it kind of what you're just talking about? Like, you know, non-moral upstanding people get it, like, or die of it? Like, can you expand on that for us? Totally. So pro-slavery thought has existed basically since the advent of slavery in the sort of greater Atlantic world. In the United States, you see a series of pro-slavery thinkers really sort of gaining national fame by the 1840s and 50s. So Samuel Cartwright, um, he's a really famous one. He's from Louisiana. He is probably the most famous sort of medical pro-slavery theorist in the United States. He would do this really sort of um, disturbing mix of kind of scripture and science and ethnology, all to essentially describe racial slavery as natural, even humanitarian. That this was the best system. It was a system of kindness. This is what Carboard would say. Famously, in fact, he came up with various diseases of Black people, um, including drapetomania, which is a disease causing slaves to run away. Or also he came up with this Black-only disease called rascality, which he said that you know, this was the root of slave misbehavior. He's a totally loathsome racist person. And one of his major ideas, one of the you know, sort of backbones of his way of thinking about slavery, race, and the South in general, was that he was a major progenitor of this theory. He didn't create it, but he propagated it, that all Black people were, quote unquote, perfect non-conductors of yellow fever. So what he's saying essentially is that all Black people, no matter where they're from, whether from West Africa or the Caribbean or from Virginia, all Black people possess either perfect immunity or at least were highly resistant to yellow fever, meaning that they didn't die in anywhere near the same numbers from yellow fever as did white people. Now, other doctors said this too. Josiah Knott, who's from Mobile, Alabama, he was another major progenitor of this. A lot of doctors said this. And what's really fascinating and just frankly very confusing also as a historian is that they're saying one thing. So they're saying on the one hand, yes, all Black people are perfectly immune to yellow fever. There is a sort of yellow fever racial logic um, that exists here, that this is a disease that impacts different races of people differently. So they're saying this on the one hand. However, on the other hand, there's evidence literally everywhere that Black people did and in fact still can die from yellow fever. There is no such thing as racial immunity to yellow fever. There's no such thing as hereditary immunity in which immunity is passed from parent to child. Skin color, race has nothing to do with one's ability to fight off this virus. But at the time, basically the entire medical and therefore also political community said that there was this special racial immunity. And they used this essentially to justify the expansion and entrenchment of slavery in and around New Orleans because they said, well, okay, so yellow fever is this problem. 
But we have a solution, which is that we're going to put Black people to work in the most dangerous, exposed, and diseased spaces. They're going to do the hardest labor associated with sugar cutting and sugar boiling. They're going to work on the levees. They're going to work in these dangerous spaces. And this is a good thing. This is a humanitarian thing because this will protect the health of white people who would otherwise die in these circumstances. People argue this time and again. And it's this unbelievably sort of vexing mix of things in the archive where, you you know, again, you have this logic of racial immunity on the one hand, but then you have the reality that, you know, epidemics come and enslaved people died in huge numbers. And enslaved people themselves, of course, were totally petrified of yellow fever because they could not, you know, afford expensive medicines or flee cities when an epidemic came down. They, you know, were trapped in New Orleans. They were trapped on plantations and they were in this totally vulnerable position. And of course, this is just one more sort of cruel twist in a massively cruel system. But you see also powerful actors in the space bending yellow fever epidemiology to meet their statecraft needs, ideological needs of this slave society. So that's all these fuckers. And it, it also is giving me echoes of some of these, I mean, it's not a new thing, but the ways that people are, you're seeing now, like with a lot of the anti-trans legislation, mm. there was this video I saw on TikTok of this state legislator saying like, oh, I'm sorry, are, are you calling my constituents demons? Because he was testifying at the state thing being like, oh, well, you know, in his mm-hmm. Christian faith, like he believes that like transgenderism is this like demonic possession. And he was literally talking about that's why they need to have this law. And she was like, I'm sorry, are you calling other constituents of like Judaic, you know, Islamic, like other faiths demons because they aren't practicing your faith? And he was like, no, no, no. But but the ways that people have always been really comfortable to like infuse their religious ideology into like health or matters of like public health debate I think is really a huge problem and how comfortable we all are to witness that. And this goes back like, you know, centuries, like, but even these doctors, when you look at like how, and I mean, obviously I respect the medical community and we deeply need them, but in this time, like who could even be a doctor was limited by race, wealth. And, you know, now it's more wealth who can be a doctor, obviously any race, but, but a lot of these um, environments are still present then and now that allow for such catastrophic lack of care to people. Totally. All these things have really deep roots in the past. And just to reiterate what you said too, you know, doctors are wonderful. We need doctors. They're, you know, fabulous. But one of the things that is really, really striking about, you know, studying this time period. So, you know, doctors are white men. These are white men who have, you know, varying levels of medical education. Medical education in this time period is deeply infused with racial thinking. Oh, yeah. That was the other thing I was going to say, too, is that, like, Francis Galton really did in the late 1700s, like, popularize this pseudoscience around, like, racializing health and, you know, was measuring heads and hands. And he also was really intrinsic to the idea that, like, women are for birthing and men are for working and, like, that, you know, the the evolution of how people are evolving to be more civilized, et cetera. So a lot of this racialized medical thinking was based off of a lot of Galton's assertions in the late 1700s when this really starts to get like much more drummed up. So by the 1850s, because, you know, you're, we were just speaking about, you know, into the 1830s, 1840s, you know, 
Louisiana has been a state for, you know, 20, 30 years at this point. The yellow fever situation is, you know, raging. It's still an every two to three years thing. But by the 1850s, some white elites start to become yellow fever denialists, which also sounds familiar. It's giving Marjorie <laughs> Taylor Greene. It's giving whispers. Yeah. What was the deal with that pivot? So by the 1850s, the yellow fever situation is not only is it continuing, it's getting worse. Yellow fever is coming every second or third summer, the worst epidemic in New Orleans history. In fact, one of the worst natural disasters in American history, even still, happens in 1853. 12,000 people die in the course of three months, very, very quickly. It's a devastating epidemic, and it's followed by another epidemic in 54 and 55. And what's really curious is at this time, when sectional tensions between the North and the South are increasing, you know, slavery is an issue that is increasingly dividing the politics and society of the United States. And you see, you have people, elites, politicians, commercial leaders in New Orleans who increasingly are saying, no, 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 yellow fever is not a problem in New Orleans. This is all some massive northern, probably abolitionist conspiracy. These are rumors that are being circulated by those abroad to discredit us, to undercut us, and to undercut the system of slavery that has made Southern prosperity possible. So what they see essentially is a conspiracy of Northerners um, and outsiders who want to degrade them and who want to undercut them and basically castigate them as pre-modern, diseased, lecherous, unclean people. And we don't want to have your way of life shoved down our throat that you do in the North. <laughs> the way of our life down here is fine and we're good. Exactly. And rumors and slander. So they basically start pitching New Orleans as a health spa in the 1850s. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. They'll say this in the middle of an epidemic when, you know, literally there are bodies that are exploding outside of cemeteries because, you know, they're bursting because the fluids in them are just, you know, overwhelming. They'll say this even as thousands of people are being, you know, dying a week and they'll just insist that mom, dad abroad or you northern newspaper or journalist, you're just imagining this. I don't know what you're talking about. They always say trust your gut. But one time, my gut told me to bleach my eyebrows. And that was fashionable, but not widely well-received. While probiotics can't help you with most of your gut decisions, it can give your gut a little bit of support. And Ritual has your back. They made a three-in-one supplement with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Did you know daily disturbances like poor diets, stress, travel, the use of certain medications, and plenty of other factors can throw off your gut microbiome? Oh, no. Enter Ritual. Their Symbiotic Plus has been a gorgeous tool. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash curious. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash curious for 25% off. Hey, it's Jonathan Van Ness. Americans United for Separation of Church and State defends your freedom to live as yourself and believe as you choose, so long as you don't harm others. Core freedoms like abortion rights, marriage equality, public education, and even American democracy itself rest upon the wall of separation between church and state. Christian nationalists are attacking these freedoms, seeking to force us all to live by their narrow beliefs. Americans United is fighting back. Freedom without favor and equality without exception. Learn more about AU at au.org slash curious. 
And it was that also like a little bit possible for them to do because there were so many other diseases and people were like, it could be, yeah. people were dying all sorts of shit. Like you could have the flu, you could die of all sorts of shit. Then like medicine just wasn't, This is the one time that I'll be fair to anybody in New Orleans propagating these myths at the time. So they'll say, I don't really understand why you New Yorkers are so concerned about yellow fever in New Orleans when you guys have so much consumption that's pulmonary tuberculosis. You know, you guys are dying left and right. And like, you know, look at your five points and look at your Lower East Side and look at all of these areas of the city that are, you know, the abodes of the poor and are filthy and people are dying in droves. And don't lecture us about you know, yellow fever in New Orleans. And they're not totally wrong. Every city is, you know, I I feel very, very lucky to have been born in the 20th century after, you know, antibiotics were discovered, things like this. Cities were incredibly dangerous places to be, not just New Orleans, though their sort of protestations about this doesn't do anything to change the problem in New Orleans or the fact that New Orleans had tripled the national mortality average. That this is, you know, literally three times the death rate in New York. Okay, so then what's this idea about, like, whites across every social class? That's one of those sentences where you're like, I hope no one ever takes that one out of context, because it's like, this shit just sounds so bad. Uh, But whites across every social class, what's the deal with that? So you have these elites, these commercial civic leaders who are arguing that, you know, they're denying yellow fever's ravages. The most interesting and kind of, like, heartbreaking and perplexing part as, you know, for me, the historian looking at this is... You see people, poor immigrants from Ireland, who arrive in New Orleans, they paid their head tax coming into New Orleans. You know, they're essentially paying upfront for their medical costs, their future medical costs. They're living in these absolutely abysmal conditions in these very cramped quarters. They're looking for work. They're living in Irish Channel. And they're petrified of yellow fever. And what kind of becomes the kind of racial bribe of this place is that you see these people who are privately petrified of yellow fever publicly saying, echoing the sort of talking points of the elite. So they'll say, oh, yellow fever, you know, it becomes, yellow fever's not not that big of a problem. You know, I hear that acclimation is a very gentle process. Only the weak die from this anyways. And they'll write home to family and say, oh, like, don't worry, I'm going to be just fine. And this is, you know, I I really do think that this is a part of the, the way that basically like whiteness coalesced in New Orleans. And so you have people who are very vulnerable to yellow fever for whom it is decidedly against their interest to deny the reality of yellow fever. You know, you see them saying, you know, very shortly after their arrival, oh, yellow fever is not a big problem. And basically this is them basically pledging their fealty to the system of whiteness and white supremacy, but also the system of slavery and to the wealth that, you know, slave grown products generate. This is basically them saying, you know, I'm accepting this culture of violence and accepting this culture of exploitation. And so disease denialism and pro-slavery thinking kind of become this Gordian knot of logics that revolve around each other. And this is a way in which sort of race comes to trump class in New Orleans and across the Deep South. You coalesce on the basis of your whiteness rather than on the basis of your poverty or your class. Right. And I can't remember what episode it was of the podcast, but I mean, that is this idea when it comes to the intersection or like the non-intersection of like poverty and race and that like, Mm -hmm. yes, there are white people who are impoverished. Yes, there are white people who live in poverty, but they get that social bargain of you get to use the whites only spaces at the time. You get the access to like, you know, and it doesn't cost the white elites anything, but it gives them, you know, this sense of an extra thing while everyone else is fighting over crumbs. But you get to have this bargaining chip of whiteness. Like that 
same bargain still exists. It's why you have current day scholars talking about this idea that just how you were saying, people making decisions against their own interests. It's a Trump voter in you know rural Arkansas or Tennessee, people who will vote for people yeah. that actually make public health worse, who you know, make yeah. it clear that they espouse this idea of like rugged individualism. Like you deal with whatever you come into contact with because you're a strong old American and that's what we do. And like it's on you to take care of yourself. Like, yes, small government, but uh, also no trans people and no gay people. And you have to like, you have to be in line with this bargain, which holds up gender and holds up race and holds up. It's, totally. it's, it's just still very, I just see it so much in our current society, like this whole, you know, Gordian knot that you're talking about. It's the central organizing principle of American, you know, history in, in so many ways since, you know, the very beginning of American settlement um, on the East Coast. This is this has always been the way in which, you know, the classes have been pitted against each other and, you know, divided. And it's fighting over crumbs. That's exactly right. Well, Stacey Abrams taught me that. I didn't invent that, but it's so true. And I just don't understand how anyone can't not buy this. Like when you look at the history, yeah. like how could, like how is this even a fucking discussion? Okay, so now we're getting into like the Civil War era. And this is like, mm-hmm. as if there wasn't like enough to fucking complicate the understanding of like New Orleans up until this point, like it gets even more complicated. So you write that during the Civil War, New Orleans was a quote, economic and military linchpin for the Confederacy. What was New Orleans significance in the Civil War? So if you think about it, New Orleans was, of course, going to be really important to the Confederacy and then also to the Union side later. On the Gulf of Mexico, it, it's at the very base of the Mississippi River. This was always going to be a really important place for the Union to recapture and control if it was going to control the Mississippi River, essentially, and envelop the South in what was called the Anaconda Plan. So that's basically trying to wrap around, do this naval blockade that would wrap around the South. That was the North's plan. Yeah, the Anaconda Plan. That's hot. I've never heard of that. Yeah. And you better give me fucking J-Lo. You better give me fucking snakes on a fucking <laughs> barge, wish. bitch. I love that. Not you, bitch, but just snakes, like the universe. <laughs> snakes on a barge. I, I would love that. Anaconda, I think, is just like that part when that snake bites that one like Colonel Mustard looking guy's finger. I screen, I think I tell that story like every, like every three years on this pod. I won't tell it now, but I just, it really... It's like a core memory for me, like Anaconda. It's like a big core. That movie's like a big... It's, it's, like, it's almost like Aaron Brockovich, like First Wives yeah, Club yeah. level core, like <laughs> Twister. Like, it's like a big deal for me. Um, okay, but I'm not going there. So, okay, so, but the Anaconda plan, like, historian, uh, yeah. we're learning yeah. shit. So they just wanted to fucking... They just wanted to wrap around like a boa constrictor Anaconda and just suffocate the South's resources. Exactly. So that that means stretching all the way down the eastern seaboard, around Florida, and then up the Mississippi River too, basically to totally enclose the South in this naval blockade. So like the North went down there to New Orleans and like seized it or that didn't go well or what happened? New Orleans was recaptured by the Union in 1862. So this is pretty early on in the war, actually. So it's one of the first things that they do. Yeah. And actually, in a, in a strange way, New Orleans really, you know, didn't suffer that much you know, the battle to recapture New Orleans really was a pretty small one. And New Orleans, during the war, never really suffered the damage that other southern cities would, like Atlanta or like Columbia, South Carolina, for example. So in come the Union Army occupies New Orleans. And one of the really interesting things about this is Benjamin Butler, 
who is a pretty pompous, pretty arrogant union general, he comes in and he institutes all of these orders to clean up the city. And so he has this famous women's order in which he basically directs the women of New Orleans. He says that, you know, you cannot spit on or disrespect union officers or else we'll treat you like a prostitute. That's literally in the order. But he also has all these sanitation orders where he orders soldiers and townspeople to literally clean up the city, sanitize things, remove dead animals, institute a quarantine. And actually, Butler was so successful in these that over the course of the war years, only a couple cases of yellow fever were reported, even though hundreds of thousands of soldiers were entering the port each year. So Butler proved that quarantine could and would work in New Orleans. So did when the Union soldiers occupied New Orleans, did they make people stop practicing slavery? Or like were people still practicing through like this time until the Emancipation Proclamation? So one of the really important things to think about with the Civil War is that basically ever since, you know, since the first um, shots were fired at Fort Sumter in South Carolina in 1861, you have enslaved people who are running to Union lines who are essentially making their freedom real in a de facto sense. They're using their feet to say, basically, I'm running away from my plantation, I'm running away from the city, and now I'm free. There, you know, the, the, the sort of legal status of these people was always up for question. Um, it would be for many years of the war. But with the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863 that Abraham Lincoln, the president, issued, this legally, at least, freed all of the people in these states, quote unquote, in rebellion. And that included Louisiana still. So yes, there was still slavery that was being practiced sort of in New Orleans. There wasn't that much of it by the time of Union occupation anyways. So then in 1863, were anyone who was still in New Orleans as a formerly enslaved person, were they able, they could like theoretically escape if they were able to like get their stuff and like get to the North, like they could theoretically be a free person and like get out of there? Yes. And they could also enlist in the Union Army. You have a lot of people in New Orleans and in the surrounding areas enlisting in these colored regiments. Um, this happens after 1863. And so, you know, Black soldiers were decisive in the Union's victory. And a huge number of people, a huge number of people um, were formerly enslaved in New Orleans and especially in the sort of Mississippi Valley, Mississippi and Louisiana. And, and I should say this too, the Union Army, the brass was also, they had, they had many similar racist ideas that enslavers had over the previous decades and centuries in that they also thought that all Black people were acclimated, you know, naturally. And so they would use Black soldiers often for sort of dangerous jobs like digging trenches in Vicksburg, Mississippi, or doing the kind of quartermaster work in these environmentally exposed places. And so they ha they operate by a sort of similar logic. And it's disappointing, actually, to see this in the record, that you can see, you know, Union soldiers all the way up to Ulysses S. Grant, who would become president. You know, he very much is of the same attitude that many enslavers said that all Black people are perfectly you know, immune to yellow fever. And therefore, this justified them doing the sort of lowest rungs of labor within the Union Army. Ugh. No, Ulysses. <laughs> so you also write in no uncertain terms that, quote, white planters had never needed slavery. They just wanted it. And I, and when you read a lot of the records, like, I mean, they were really saying, you know, how much they needed it, how much the, you know, blah, 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 blah. Like, they were just saying it was, like, so crucial. So what happened to those planters after the Civil War? And what happened to the people they'd enslaved? So the thing that's really fascinating about these planters who, in the 1850s, during slavery, they had said that all Black people were perfectly immune to yellow fever. What they'll say after, this is therefore a justification for why slavery should exist, after the war, after emancipation, they'll say, actually, it wasn't Black skin or race that had made Black people immune to yellow fever. It was slavery. It was the condition of slavery. So that was basically a prophylactic condition. And now, after emancipation, they would sort of catastrophize and say, now that they are 
you know, freed from white supervision, these free people, these people who had been enslaved, they will die in these huge numbers. Of course, this never happened. I mean, many Black people did die after the war. There are many historians, especially Jim Downs at Gettysburg now, who's written about these massive epidemics of smallpox and other diseases that really impacted the way that Black people experienced freedom in the aftermath of emancipation. But you have these planters who are just shifting the logic of immunity and of yellow fever to fit the new political economy of emancipation, of, of this post-emancipation world. And so many people who had been enslavers, you know, they became, they would hire Black sharecroppers, they would hire acclimated Irishmen. You know, acclimation you know, still mattered a great deal in job interviews and things like this, where you would have planters who would, they would still discriminate on this basis. Though, of course, the sort of political economy of the South had fundamentally changed in freedom. But Lincoln's not president very long, like after the North kind of wins in 1865, like he wins re-election and he's only alive for like really a very hot second into that second term, right? Yeah, he dies April 1865, right after the House has ratified the 13th Amendment, right after his second inauguration, his second inaugural address is probably his best speech ever. And, you know, he really is not alive for very long. And then comes then the vice president, the very drunk um, asshole, Andrew Johnson, my least favorite president. And he was famous for having been like the only Southern senator who didn't like secede, which is why Lincoln picked him to try to like be a more like, you know, unifying ticket or whatever. Uh, Great. But he basically says like, you know, Lincoln had made Reconstruction be a thing like legally. But then after 10 years, Johnson's like, oh, we don't need it anymore. Like, it's fine. Like, we don't need to do 40 acres and a mule. Like, everything's even, Stephen. We're just going to pretend like that's over. Like, it's all we're all good now. That happens basically the moment that Andrew Johnson becomes president. Oh. You know, he's a Democrat, actually. You know, and the the Republicans and the radical Republicans control Congress at this time. But, you know, he's hated in Washington and he is vetoing all of this legislation that Congress is passing. But Congress actually had the vote, so they were able to, you know, pass over his veto. Things like the Civil Rights, the first Civil Rights Act, the chartering of the Freedmen's Bureau, all these like sort of key pieces of legislation and during Reconstruction, but also the 14th Amendment and the 15th Amendment too. And so, you know, Johnson. He's impeached, actually. He's not voted out of office. The one vote. One vote, one vote. Which uh, paid off. Which was a paid off vote. Yeah, Yeah, that's a whole other podcast. And and then Ulysses Grant becomes president after that. And he is not hot on Reconstruction, necessarily. So they all just kind of want to be like that little like clip of Homer when Homer like backs into the bushes, like when he's backing away slowly, just like, "Uh, like, we're fine. Like, he's like, it's over. It's obviously not fine. But, but, okay, so actually, if you're still listening to the podcast at this point, which I really hope you are, Check out Catherine for... She's going to give us like a post-Civil War in New Orleans in like one or two minutes maybe for social. We'll figure something out, but it's going to be good. So check us for that later. We could also maybe do like a 10-minute special follow-up or something later as well. Um, But so in Necropolis, you write about how death records and newspapers suppressed truths about yellow fever. What was it like to research for this book? It was both really fun and also really frustrating. You know, yellow fever is in many ways, it's an amazing disease to study because it's so present in the archive. It's all over every source, every single newspaper or tax record or doctor's ledger or diary, everything. Also, you know, New Orleans was a sort of shocking and deadly place in the 19th century that people obsessively wrote about it. So in that respect, this was a really interesting project to work on. But it's also tricky, too, because as a historian, you know that the data was compromised. I'm not a you know, sort of data supremacist. I think it's a lot of people who sort of feel that like they can get all the answers out of sort of regressions and data and things like this. But all the data from New Orleans is compromised because the elites try to suppress the the true nature of death in New Orleans. And so 
that's tricky. It's trying to sort of triangulate a truer picture of the past than official records suggest. But it's, you know, it's fun too, because you kind of feel like you're a detective with one of those little boards where you string and like on Homeland or something where you are sort of like connecting dots and this came over here and you know, this is how many people died from, according to this, you know, clerk in 1847. You know, what about over here? Who says this over here? It's, it's really fun to sort of try to map together a truer picture. One that also I think, you know, people on the ground at the time would have recognized themselves. And I think that that's also a part of the duty of a historian is to try to build a world that people at the time would have recognized. Were you ever able to find like a really smoking gun in that work where like one person like was reporting like much smaller amounts that then you're able to tell from like either like a hospital or like some sort of like maybe buying new people or something? Like how did you figure that out? Constantly. I mean, this is so... 1819, for example, you know, the city won't ever declare an epidemic of yellow fever. However, you know, from ecclesiastical records, you know, from cemetery reports that literally thousands of people died that summer. Like, you know, just there's it's a polar opposite world where you have, you know, one group of people saying one thing and then in the reality, it's different. I will say that the sort of the strangest source, I remember this like very clearly. I was reading a diary of a man whose two kids and wife, in fact, died from yellow fever in 1847. And he had this diary and it ended in 1853. And on the last page, squeezed between after the last entry was a mosquito that had been squished into the page with blood around it. And I thought to myself, like, oh my gosh, that's, that's the mosquito. And he died from yellow fever a few days later. So I was like, that, this is the offending mosquito. And I like closed the, the book very carefully to try to keep it, you know, in there, but thought like, wow, this is where also it's like so important, not just to like, you know, I say this to my undergrads now, it's so important to not just like Google things and look things, you know, up online, like getting into archives and actually feeling what these documents are like. It makes all the difference. Wow. It really speaks to like that archives and our history is, is so, we, we just learned so much about a place and a time from the people at that time, which is just the, the pictures that you're able to create are just so interesting. So, What's next for you in your work, Catherine? What's next book? What's your next research? What what are you obsessed with? My husband is going to kill me for saying this because I have regaled him with too many disgusting stories of people dying, vomiting black blood over the last few years. But I think my next product is going to be about syphilis and the Civil War. And the way that basically the Civil War was a super spreader event for this particular venereal disease, this horrific venereal disease. And the ways in which also syphilis spread, you know, within camps between soldiers and prostituted women, but also, you know, when, you know, to the home front as well, to wives and girlfriends, but also as soldiers had sex with each other, there's, you know, sexuality in this war is a huge and really um, tricky question. And it's it's hard to research uh, because people obviously don't talk about a lot of things that I'm interested in, but it's, that makes it kind of all the more fun. Oh my God, gay stuff, syphilis, and also that episode of the Borgias when the one guy dies of syphilis and they pour know, like hot know, melting mercury oh. up his pee hole. Catherine, I'm you're gonna have to come back and tell us about like the hot liquid mercury at the pee hole. I'm so excited for that project and for you to tell us everything. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing your literal life's work and scholarship with us. Like we have to have you back on getting curious. We're obsessed with you, Catherine. Y'all, you need to be following her. Uh, where are you? Where are you the most active? Are you a Twitter queen? Are you a Instagram queen? Where are you at? I'm on. I'm on Twitter most of all at Cat Oliverius. All right, so that's where we're following you, Catherine Oliverius. Thank you so much for coming on. Getting curious, we adore you and your work so much. Thank you so much.
You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. You can learn more about this week's guests and their area of expertise in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, introduce a friend, honey, and please show them how to subscribe. Follow us on Instagram at Curious with JVN. Our editor is Andrew Carson. Getting Curious is produced by me, Erica Ghetto, and Chris McClure, with production support from Emily Bosick and Julie Carrillo. 